I want to share some things this morning. Um, I'm really pleased to be able to share this. I was not expecting to do this today. Uh, Pastor Jesse and I talked several weeks ago about my sharing, um, actually preparing a message and giving it during the service as one of the elders here. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. It's not one of my favorite things to do. I like to be back in the booth, okay? I'm a behind-the-scenes type of guy, so put me up in front, and I get a little bit like this, okay? If you see my knees shaking, you'll know what's going on. I I can stop that. Um, We are pleased, though, because um, God arranged the time for me to do that. Um, Our brother Jesse and Sam are not doing poorly. They're, They're facing the reality of their illness right now. <clears throat> and um, I, I have texted both of them. They are doing okay. Um, but there are others in our churches, you know, that have also contract, and a couple others that have, because of exposure, been identified as having as well COVID. So please be in prayer for them. Uh, God has been faithful to us. Dave Oliveri is home. Okay? Yes. Pray for Dave. Marilyn needs his help, okay? So um, uh, Annie and I share things. We shared that thing too. Um, <clears throat> glad we've shared it and don't hopefully have to share it anymore. But pr- please be in prayer um, for not just our congregation, but for our country, our city, our brothers and sisters, our friends who are working the front lines in hospitals. Um, I mean, I can picture, I've not been there, but I can picture being there and just the constant wear and tear on the emotions. Um, My mom's a nurse. She's told me all about it and how it was very difficult for her. I can imagine it. And um, I just, in that understanding and that limited understanding, um, I pray for them as well. But pray for God to move in our country, God to move in the world, God's using and working and moving in these things. His full intention is always to do that. So, and we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, I want to talk about confronting your fear, okay? When we started talking about this, Pastor Jesse said, I want you to talk, I want you to share, okay? And um, the theme is unlikely heroes, and I thought, bing, I've got one. The Bible really has no problem coming up with unlikely heroes. I mean, you can just start going through the pages of Scripture from day one and just find them left and right. As people who were ordinary, God raised up and used in an extraordinary way. And that's the, that's the way God works. That's the fun of being one of his followers. And so I... Um, I took this on with a little bit of a fear and trembling because um, like many, I don't like public speaking. And you're going, really? Weren't you a speech comm major, engineering major in college? And I said, mm-hmm. And every time I got up, I got this little funny feeling right about there and my knees did start to shake and I had to always commit it to God and say, okay, God, if you want this to come out, you're gonna have to do it. Which is good because that... Um, a song that uh, Chad mentioned, I, I did a number of those, I Surrender All, Lord, and I had a number of opportunities in speech comm class. But the sensation of stage fright is bad enough, but what's worse 
is the damage I could do to you and who you are and your self-esteem, okay? Uh, I'm sure <clears throat> that you have seen this somewhere where someone's kids, if it wasn't your own, got up on stage to do a piano recital or an instrument or a vocal recital or some kind of poetic recitation and they just went like this. And they froze and their eyes got really big and you, as a parent, just sat there going, come on, come on, come on, come on. You can do it, you can do it. And you just prayed for those eyes to narrow and that look to get in there and that determination are gone. And they raise their hands and they put them on the keyboard or they put them onto the instrument or they open their mouth and go, you've seen it, right? Uh, I'm not the only one. I have five children, okay? And yes, I've seen it. They overcame it fairly quickly, thank the Lord. Otherwise, I would have had a heart attack earlier than my wife. But the point is, we've seen that stage fright and we know what it's like. And that's one of the biggest ones. Glossophobia is one of the biggest fears that people can relate to. Um, when you step into your stage fright, however, on stage, you realize that pretty much it's a fog. It's a phantom. I mean, once I got here, I really didn't have a choice. I was committed, okay? The cameras are rolling. Streaming is going. You're watching, and I have a, a message prepared, okay? So it's a matter of going forth with what God has. And yet it is really a fog. It's a figment of your imagination. It is not not a fear, it is a real fear, okay? I'm not saying there's no real gloss thing such as glossophobia. I'm saying that you can easily cut through it, like when the fog rises and you can see the roads ahead of you. When the fog comes up, and as, long, as, you, as soon as you see it go, you're going, we can do this. But <clears throat> what, the question is, what will we accomplish once that fog burns off and we take some risk? And I want to talk not about stage fright or speaking fright. Um, that's only one example of fear, and I'm sure that I'm not going to cover all of them. Okay? I don't have time to do that for one. But the reality is we're talking about a number of different kinds. I'm going to start, I kind of categorized them into three categories. Fear of man, fear of the enemy, and fear of God. Okay? And the first two are pretty straightforward. We have examples of them all over the place. So you, fear of man is more like feel fear of failure. Fear of appearing foolish or stupid. Now I don't see any kids here, they're all over our children's church this morning, but how many of you did not raise your hand in class because you were afraid of looking stupid? I'm raising my hand, okay? I missed many a good opportunity to learn in class because of a fear that someone would look at me and say, you're so dumb. What's the matter with you? You don't get it? Duh. And I was like, I don't get it, but I was too timid to actually raise my hand and actually learn. It was really dumb. But it was because I was afraid of that appearance. How about fear of saying the wrong thing? My wife knows I do that. I've said it a couple times or done it already this morning while giving the announcements. Okay, it happens. But I was afraid of that too. Fear of punishment. How about fear of persecution? How about fear of rejection? How many of us have a hard time opening our mouths to share our faith with someone 
particularly someone who's important to us because we're afraid of persecution back from them or fear of rejection. We're in a real awkward situation a lot of times because with this current pandemic, there's a lot of information out there, and we don't know in many cases what's right and wrong. You know, I'm going to could get in trouble for that. I understand that, but there's enough information and counterinformation that really could offer confusion. And I don't want to in any way put pick sides on this thing. Okay, at this point in time, I'm grateful that I'm alive and past it. Okay, it's the grace of God for me and my wife. Many of you have seen and know of and, and understandably have lost special ones to this. So it's real. But the fear of it or the fear of a solution to it or anything in between is a challenge for us. Okay? I'm not speaking to myself, am I? No, I see a hand back there. Thank you, sister. I appreciate that. What about the fear of the unknown? That, that is part of what we're dealing with here, aren't we? We don't know what this thing can do or how far it can go or whether or not it will do it to us and what we should do about it. Fear the known. Are the solutions that are available good solutions or not good solutions? That is a fear of the known, okay? I've faced that myself, okay? Fear the battle. How about, uh, we're, let's talk about the, the men who have to, and the women who have to defend our country. And they're walking out into the middle of enemy fire. How about fear of pain, fear of suffering, fear of sickness, fear of death? All of those kind of escalating to a natural end that we know we're going to have to face. But do we tend to run that direction? No, I don't really want to die today necessarily. My wife probably doesn't want me to die today either, okay? But the reality is if I die, I know where I'm going, okay? I know what my future is. I know what my hope is. My hope is in Jesus Christ. I've placed my faith. I've surrendered all to him. I now rest in his promise. Well, there's a number of people that have faced this kind of fear, and they've not, fear can paralyze, but I want to share with you a couple of, um, quote, bits of wisdom, if you will, from individuals who have faced fear. That's a little small, but this is from one of my favorite people. Thomas Edison said, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways it won't work in relation to the light bulb and probably another thousand things that he invented. Um, He never stopped looking at solutions. You gain strength, let me read this one because it's small, I can see it on the screen there. You gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop and look fear in the face. You are able to say to yourself, I have lived through this horror. I can take the next thing or take on the next thing that comes along. You must do the thing that you think you cannot do, so says or said Eleanor Roosevelt. How about the next one? Inaction brings doubt and fear. Action brings confidence, breeds, excuse me, confidence and courage. If you want to conquer fear, do not sit at home and think about it. Go out and get busy. That's an interesting one to say at this time in history, but Dale Carnegie apparently got busy. 
and we know of Carnegie Mellon University and a few other things that are named Carnegie as a result of the work he did. Now, I'm not saying that you want to be like Dale Carnegie necessarily, okay, because he didn't do so well at the end of his life like the other guys. But this guy did. Captain, my religious belief tells me to feel as safe as in battle as in bed. I like that. Safe as in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to always be ready no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live. And then all would be equally brave. I love that. Stonewall Jackson said that. And he's the guy that would stand up and ride his horse as a general out into the battle, even with bullets going through his hat. Because of his confidence in who he was in the Lord, that's, that's, <clears throat> that's definitely walking in the face of fear with bravery, courage. One of the greatest discoveries a man makes, one of his great surprises, is to find he can do what he was afraid he couldn't do. So said Henry Ford. How many of us drive Fords this day? <laughs> the, uh, how many of us drive automobiles because he could make them affordable? That was his idea. Okay? As common as the horse and carriage. I like this one, though, this last one. My favorites, because I was a kid once, too. Don't let the fear of striking out hold you back. I don't know about you, but when I was in gym class as a kid, this is the way I would hold the bat. I'd stand there, and I wasn't very athletic, okay? I was the nerd, okay? And so the idea of watching professional go like this, come on, bring it on, let me have it. And they're swinging that bat, just waiting, and when it comes, they pull back, and they lean in, and they go full out. Do you ever watch that on the instant replays? I, I took notice of it because I, I learned from it. <laughs> it was one of those things I could always relate to. I'm going, boy, I wish I learned that when I was 12. And not been so timid with that bat. I could have bat one over that wall, just like he did, because the wall wasn't that far away in my field. <laughs> Here's my favorite quote for the day. But now... Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Just stop and say that to yourself. You are mine. If any of you have seen the Chosen series, <clears throat> and I do like it, it is a, an excellent depiction, albeit drawn from biblical material with extra biblical material from the disciples' perspective, perhaps. But it does a very fine job of postulating what it could have been like being a disciple in an awkward, difficult, and even impossible situation and being brought from that situation into a place. And this is what Jesus said to Mary Magdalene. Spoiler alert. Okay? Go and watch episode one. Every time I see it now, I weep. This verse means something new to me because of the way it's postulated there. And Jesus said, you are mine. 
He redeemed her as a woman in Israel who was under a curse because she was demon-possessed and probably raped and who knows what else. She was completely broken and she knew she needed help. I did too. But I love how God speaks to that to us. So let's move then forward into um, Gideon's calling. So... um, this is um, circumstances. Uh, no, I'm, you're ahead of me, Nate, sorry. <laughs> I'm going to give a little context here. So um, if you want to back it up, you can. Uh, each one of us has an influence on others' lives. The book of Judges reveals the condition of the Israelites after the conquest of Canaan. In my mind, it's a sad commentary on the faithlessness of the Israelites. I struggle I struggle with the repeated failures of God's chosen people. Judges 1, 27 and 28 tells us that a number of cities in Canaan successfully repelled the Israelites. Names them, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites. These are cities and towns around those cities that successfully said, "Uh uh-uh, not our land, not driving us out, not taking us over. And that whatever that was the, the faithlessness of the Israelites at that point in time or something else that the Scripture points out. <clears throat> Judges 1, 20, uh, two, I'm sorry, 2, 1 and th- through 13 instructs the Israelites to make no covenant with the inhabitants. Pardon me. I think it's Florida, but I'm not <clears throat> absolutely sure. But my nose is running today. Ah. It rhymes when I start to weep, too. Back in Numbers 22 through 24, Balak tries to hire Balaam to curse the Israelites, but Balaam could not. He could only bless them. And three times, Balak said, oh, come on, over here, do it. Performs the sacrifice, blesses the Israelites. Come on over here, how about this place? Performs the sacrifice, blesses the Israelites. How about over here? Three times. Couldn't do it. Had only a blessing, only what the Lord tells me that I can say. Okay, Balaam, good, glad you did that. Only one problem is later on, apparently, um, he instructed Balak to have the Israelite men marry the daughters of Balak's people. Okay, what did that do? Well, this seduced Israel away from following the Lord to worship the gods of their wives. I call it covenanted compromise. They covenanted with women in marriage and compromised their faith and then walked away from the Lord. After Joshua's death in Judges 2.11, we see that the Israelites began to serve the Baals. In 2.14, we read, God gave them over to plunderers. Because of the compromise of the Israelites, God left the nations to test the Israelites. It's actually written in Scripture. His intent is always to bring us back into the covenant relationship with him, but we will use all kinds of move, and he will use all kinds of means to move us back in devotion to himself. But the reality is this approach often leaves us in some rather dire straits. Situations that don't look good, some have really bad potential outcomes, or leave us struggling in the midst of a circumstance. However, God is always seeking to restore us into relationship with him. Let me say that again. God is always seeking to restore us into relationship with him. That is the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The enemy of our souls will resist us in the gospel, but we can do all things through Christ Jesus. Like the rich young ruler, we tend to do it our way. When Jesus asks us to lay everything down for his sake and to follow him, we will find ourselves with rather major life choices. Who can be saved was the question that the disciples then asked after they saw the rich young ruler walk away sad because he had much wealth. Jesus' answer may or may not have satisfied them. With man, this is impossible. In other words, there's no way that you can do it. The young, rich, young ruler had thought that he had all these commandments I've kept from my youth. Then go and do one thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Simple. Pretty straightforward, huh? Couldn't do it. Why don't we sad? So if he can't do it, how can it happen? Well, Jesus finished with God. Nothing is impossible. That's in all three synoptic gospels. You can look it up. With God, nothing is impossible. In other words, somehow it's going to be possible, but only with God. So let's look at the circumstances that Gideon faced in Judges 6, 1 through 10. We're talking about Gideon. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years God gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive. This is Judges 6, 1 through 10, if you want to follow along, by the way. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. That's from the Jordan all the way to the Mediterranean, folks. That's all the way across. And did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came out with their livestock, their tents like swarms of locusts. Anybody ever see what locusts do to a wheat field? Unbelievable. Little stalks. That's it. Nothing left. Doesn't even look like grass anymore. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Verse 6 says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites, they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, this is verse 6 and 7, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of your oppressors. Now, that's a sermon in itself. I brought you, I rescued you, I delivered you. Okay, that's a three-point sermon. I'd love to do that one sometime. I drove them out before you and gave them gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But, but you have not listened to me. Ouch. You have not listened to me. So the situation is simple. Israel is apostate. They're following after Baal and setting up Asherah poles, worshiping on hills, sacrificing to these things. Raiders are coming in, are prescribed by the Lord, apparently, sweeping the land and destroying everything in their path. 
Then no prophetic voices didn't land during that time, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's a quote from later on in, in uh, Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there was no unity, no following of the Lord that was clear. There was no leadership that was apparent. The cycle already repeated itself multiple times. Jesse shared, or Pastor Jesse shared about Deborah, one of the judges. There were three others before her, Othniel, Ehud, and Shangar. Each were raised up in response to the cry of the Israelites for deliverance. It was a three-part cycle. Israel goes back to worship the Baals and the local deities. God raises up a judge to deliver them from the oppressors. The judge dies, repeat, repeat. And by this time, Gideon is number five on the judge list. It had happened with 200 years of oppression. So you think after 200 years, they get the message. We are dumb sheep, aren't we? Okay? So I want to look at Gideon's character briefly. Judges 6, 11 through 23 says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of, in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Bezrite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Stop and think. Threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, if you keep, go back to what I just said, they were hiding, the Israelites were hiding in caves and holes and strongholds, anything that would keep them from being crushed by the locusts, literally, that were overtaking and destroying their land and eating them alive, literally. Okay, so you kind of get to a point where you're not seeing any success in overcoming this, and you start taking, we'll call it secondary measures. Another approach, okay, plan B. This is what a wine press can look like. This is actually the first picture I put up. Um, there's multiple pictures online if you want to research a little bit. But uh, typically, ladies and men would wash their feet <laughs> before they'd step into a pile of grapes, in this blocked off hole in the ground that had a hole in the side that would drain the juice from the squash grapes into another pit. They pick that up, put it in the wineskins, ferment it, blah, 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 and become wine. So you get in there and you stomp around. They also had a rope over their heads so they could hold on and not fall face first into the grape juice, <clears throat> which would not be so good, okay, for a number of reasons. And that's what the typical one looks like. You've seen this kind of picture before, but when I picture Gideon, I picture him going to some place like this. Supposedly, this is a wine press, okay? It's in a cave, okay? Why would you want to thresh wheat where you can't be seen? Because you thresh wheat by taking a fork, you lift it up, you throw it up in the air, it blows off the chaff and the dust and the wind and creates a cloud of dust that can be seen for miles. Hint, hint, Midian's wheat over here, right here, come see it. So if you go in a cave like this or go into a place where you're somewhat secluded and unable to be seen and try to thresh wheat, I can't picture threshing wheat without wind, okay? Because you throw it up, the wind catches the chaff, blows it away. That's also in the Bible. Pick it up, wind blows it away. How do you get it to blow away inside of there? I don't call that an efficient approach to doing the thing, the work that needs to be done, but hey, won't be seen, will you? Okay? So here's Gideon, and um, he's basically 
being oppressed, and the people are coming in, doing that oppression in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites when the angel of the Lord appeared again and he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, let, let me say that one again. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I don't know how to say it the way the angel or the messenger of God said it, but the reality is the words say it all. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's response is just kind of tickles my fancy. Like verse 13, he says, Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but the Lord is with us. Why has all this happened to us? It's a reasonable response. It's a reasonable question. What's going on, Lord? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of, my, save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Okay. Well, um, Gideon and Moses have a little bit of familiarity or similarity here because his next response is, well, pardon me, Lord, for asking. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? (laughs) My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. I'm the baby. All my big brothers told me from my youth up that I couldn't do it. I had nothing to work with. What did God say? Go in the strength that you have, mighty warrior. I just combined a couple of verses. But basically, go in the strength you have, mighty warrior. Am I not sending you? It's a pretty clear call. Probably more clear than any call that I've ever received. I never had someone sit me from me face to face as a messenger from the Lord, per se, and speak audibly to me. I love God's response to the messenger of God. said, I'll be with you. I will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Whoa. Seriously? Okay, by this time, Gideon seems to be getting it because he says, if I found favor in your eyes, if I found favor in your eyes, which is a polite way of saying, I think you're saying to me that you're going to do something really significant here and I'm going to be a part of that. Thank you. Give me a sign that's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And basically, Gideon offers typical hospitality. I'm going to have to wrap this up here fairly soon. He basically goes in, kills a a calf, boils the meat, makes a gravy, makes some uh, unleavened bread, brings it out, sets it before the stranger, before the messenger of God. And the messenger of God takes his staff, puts it on the top of it, after he says, pour it onto the rock that I'm right in front of me, put the meat on it, uh, put the bread on it, pour the stuff on top, puts the staff on it, and goes poof vaporizes, and then the messenger vaporizes. Poof, he goes. He's gone. Gideon's response is a typical one. Alas, I've seen the face of the Lord. I'm in fear 
because of Moses, God put his hand over the cleft of the rock, remember? Said, you shall not see my face, for if you see my face, you shall die. You shall surely die. Well, God protected Moses. The messenger says, peace, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So in every step of the way, God is working with Gideon here. I mean, clear call, straightforward statements. I'm going to be with you. I will strike down the Midianites. None will remain. In other words, I'm going to do it. You just go in the strength you have. I love that phrase. So, um, in summary here, it sort of says that Gideon is sort of either faithless or faithful. I mean, he contends on behalf of the Israelites, doesn't he? He says, well, if you are with us, then why? God says, hey, I'm going to deliver. He responds, he's least in the family, told that he was weak, the youngest, least experienced, or the least capable. And God says, go in the strength you have. doesn't matter. I will strike down the Midianites. He's willing to listen, at least. So this is the conclusion, folks. He's willing to listen. If I found favor in your eyes... He goes and does the hospitality. The messenger of God smokes his meal, and Gideon goes on. Now, I'm going to have to stop here uh, because the um, time has gone by, and I knew it would. I told Jesse I'd prepare a message, and I ended up preparing two messages. Here's the second half. God knows. And I'm sure that we have probably not all received this kind of a call, okay? But we all have been called. We all have borne the mark of sin. Yet those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ have seen that mark erased. The sin is effectively null and void against us. The, The penalty of that sin is null and void. Yeah, we may still have to face death, but we're only going to face a physical death not a spiritual death. And we will, unless Jesus comes back before then. Gideon, like Gideon, we have been visited by God. Some of us more dramatically than others. Some of you have heard when you were small that you need to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. I didn't hear until I was 18. It was like a light went on. The Spirit of God opened my mind removed a veil from me in a a sense and said, you know, the first three things you've heard all your life, now just apply them to your problem, Tom. Let me take over. That was the gospel for me. Jesus, I knew God loved me. I knew that I was sinful. I knew Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I knew not that I needed to simply turn my life over to him and allow him to take over. I didn't know I was supposed to surrender all. Should have, but I didn't. I didn't catch it. But God, like Gideon, still continued to work and bringing me into that relationship with him. Like Gideon, he kept on saying, I want to restore Israel. I want to bring deliverance to Israel. I want to bring you back into my covenant. Look at what I will do. 
on your behalf. God has made that same covenant possible, if you will, in a new way through Jesus Christ. It's just to me, I surrender all. I don't know about you, but when I was preparing, God put some fingers on things in my own life. That's why I could speak about the glossophobia. That's why I spoke about Babe Ruth. When I looked up fear quotes online, there were 25 online that I didn't have to really search very far. And I started going through them, went, yep, 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 yep. I just picked five of them to share with you this morning because of the, the change that these people went through. Now, whether or not they were able to change because of something that I lacked, which was a, the courage to change or the ability to call, pull myself up by the bootstraps, I knew that I needed a savior. I had a, a five-finger discounting problem. It's a nice way of saying, if I saw what I liked, I would pick it up and procure it. <clears throat> it's now mine. Well, that happens to be my water, but there's a, a nice little clicker right here too that I just hit the button of, and I would just procure, okay? And I knew I couldn't break it. I had tried. My selfishness, my limitations, my personal hindrance of wanting kept me from really breaking through. I needed a savior. I'm being vulnerable with you today because I want us to be able to look at any fear that God might have even put in your mind and in your heart while I was speaking. Maybe he prepared your hearts before you came and said, you're afraid of this. I want you to have that opportunity to lay it before the Lord and surrender it here. Whether or not you want to come up front, meet me up here, we'll pray, or stay there and pray and surrender it off to the Lord. It doesn't matter to me, but I want to give you that opportunity. So I'm just going to stop for a few minutes, and then in a few minutes I'll pray. If you want to do business with the Lord here, please feel free.